We ask it in Jesus' name. All the saints of God said, amen. All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 3 as we continue our study through this book. Now, we've already looked at in, in Hebrews where, um, you know, for us, we're making this book pretty simple. We're just having this book where Jesus is better. That's it. Just Jesus is better. If you want to add more words to your outline, just Jesus is immeasurably better. Um, So no matter what, just realize he is so much better. And then when you think that you know how much better he is, then triple it, double it, quadruple it. Just make him so much better. So we saw that Jesus was better than the prophets. We saw that, that Jesus was better than the angels. And what we're going to see here tonight is that Jesus is better than Moses. Now, the interesting thing about here is when the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being better than the prophets, he doesn't tear down the prophets. He makes them absolutely amazing. I mean, he elevates them to this huge degree how God used them. He doesn't talk about their flaws, doesn't talk about their failures. He talks about just how amazing they are. And then what does he do? And then he makes Jesus so much better. Same thing when it comes to the angels, where it talked about how he's better than the angels in his deity. He's better than the angels in his humanity. Now, he doesn't talk about in the flaws of the angels. He talks about how amazing they are. But at the same, same time, he says Jesus is so immeasurably better. And the same thing he'll do with Moses. He's going to go through and he's going to talk about Moses. He's going to talk about just how faithful Moses is in his house. And he's not going to be pointing out any of Moses' failures. He's going to be elevating Moses incredibly. But then with all his elevation, he's going to say, but listen, and Jesus is still so much better. So I love what the author of Hebrews does. He doesn't seek to tear things down. He seeks to elevate them as high as they can be. But at the same time, even when he's elevating them, he's saying, how much more is Jesus Now, it begins this in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of your confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has far more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. I want to pause there for just a second as we look to this, because initially he's talking about this study. There's a study that we need to understand. And that's why it says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest. Consider this, study this, grab a hold of this. And so we're seeing here that when he uses that word, therefore, it's always important, and I know it sounds silly, but it is. It's so important. What's it there for? What happened before? Well, Jesus was so superior to the prophets. He was so superior to the angels in both his deity and humanity. Therefore, as we look to all these things, how Jesus is better, he says, therefore, seeing how Jesus is better, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The first thing he does is this. He calls him holy. 
I love this about God. When, when here the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest. So he calls them first holy. Now, I love the heart of that because we have been made holy by the work of Jesus Christ. We're not being made holy by what we do. We have been purchased. We have been um, cleansed. This is all a work of Jesus. He's the one who makes us holy. And so I love the heart that the first thing they do is that they look to the, the, the heart of they were made this way by the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to understand. We are made this way. We are who we are by the work of Jesus Christ. And it's only by his grace we are who we are by the grace of God. I love what Paul said. He says, listen, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle, but yet by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he says, and I've yet, even as an apostle, I wasn't worthy to even be called one. He says, I've done more than all the other ones combined. Yet, he said, it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was in me. So understand that God, through his grace, he, he works in us, he calls us, and it's all through that, but he calls them holy. He says, holy brethren. Not only does he call them holy, dealing with, you know, they were made holy by his work, but then he calls them brethren. Holy brethren, that you are part of a family of God, that you are part of this incredible thing that Jesus Christ has done. He's done the work. He's brought you in. And so he calls them, therefore, holy brethren, that you are one made holy by Jesus's work. You're brought into this family by Jesus's work. And then he says, partakers of the heavenly calling. First, he calls them holy. Then he calls them brother. And then he calls them partakers. Now, this is so amazing because you're, you're made holy by his work. You're brought into the family by Jesus' work. And then through this now, he says, you need to partake of this. You need to be understanding that it's been given to you. You have to receive it and you have to apply it. And that's what it means by simply being a partaker. You can't just simply have a gift that's been given to you and you do nothing with it. If the gift is still sitting there, unopened, unused, is it really yours? Well, well, it, it is in the technical sense, but it isn't in that literal sense because you're not using it. You're not partaking of it. So that's the beauty of seeing here where he says, Therefore, heavenly, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. You now are a partaker of this heavenly calling. You are, you are the holy brethren. How amazing is that, that here we see that here the very character and the life that is, is heaven itself is, is now what? Within us because of the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that, that the Holy Spirit, because of the work of Jesus Christ, resides in you. And so you have this Holy Spirit. You have that, that holy calling. Walk in it. And then as you're walking in it, then he says this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the holy call, heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He now says, because of all the things that you now have, consider, and I love this, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
consider Christ Jesus. Pay attention to that. Now, that word consider means to observe. It means to understand. In a sense, it means to set your eyes on it. Don't take your eyes off of it and then take in as much detail as you can. Consider this. Ponder it. Study it. Understand what's going on. It doesn't mean you just kind of gaze and look away. And I think that's what happens so often with Christians is we sort of just look to the Lord and then we look away. We, we, we look to the Lord, then we look away. And we're not just focused on Christ. Now, you know as well as I do that when you just set your eyes upon the Lord and you don't take your eyes off the Lord and everything is, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, your life begins to just shine. But when you look at him and you take your eyes off, you look, you take your eyes off, and all of a sudden, what? It's sort of like Peter there walking on the water. He was there walking, but he took his eyes off the Lord, and he began to look at the wind and the waves, and then he began to sink. And that's what happens to us when he says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So he calls him not only an apostle, but he calls him a high priest. What does it mean? Well, an apostle would be, in the technical sense, someone who's sent out. We would call it in a sense that he would be an ambassador. He was sent out. He's an ambassador for God. And what an apostle is, is someone who is sent forth from God. God sends him forth. The term simply literally means sent out or sent forth. <clears throat> but an apostle will represent God to man. And that's who Jesus is. He's representing God to men. Remember where he told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the exact representation of God. I am that image. And so we see here that he's, is, he is the apostle. He's the one who represents God to man. But he's also the high priest. And the high priest is what? He's the one who represents man to God. And so you have him, he's, he's God and he's man. He's the, the apostle sent from God. He's the son of God. He's God in the flesh. And then he's the high priest. So he's able to take us now and bring us what? Into a neat relationship with God, into a place of intimacy and power. And that's who Jesus Christ is. And so it says, consider him, just focus on him. The one who has God's hand, the one who has our hand, the one who joins those hands together. This is what he says, consider him. Consider the apostle, the one who was sent forth from God, and the high priest, the one who brings man to God. And so he says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. In other words, just not, just not that belief, but literally you're confessing Jesus Christ with your mouth. See, with the heart one believes, but with confession confession. That's where salvation is made. So the heart simply has this belief, but you have to declare it. And so what we're doing is this. He's the, 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 he's the confession of he comes from God and he brings me to God. He's the one who makes me holy. He's the one who makes me part of this family. He's the one who allows me, because of his work, to be a partaker of this heavenly calling. It's all him. And so keep in mind, this very first verse is all just focusing. Just get your eyes on the Lord. Get your eyes on him who is so much better. And then in verse 2, it says, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. So now it talks about here, Get your eyes on Jesus, who was faithful. 
And he was faithful as Moses also was faithful. And I love the heart of this because what we see this is he talks about Moses being faithful. And Moses truly was. I love the the heart that he doesn't tear down Moses at all. Like he doesn't talk about where Moses there in Exodus 2 where he killed the Egyptian. He goes and kills this guy, and yet it doesn't say, well, you know, he's an Egyptian. He's a murderer. It doesn't talk about how when God calls him, he's like, I don't know. I don't talk well. You know, you're stalling, Moses. Don't stall. Go for me. And so it doesn't talk about any of his failures. It doesn't talk about when we're there in the book of Numbers that, that he goes and he's supposed to speak to the rock. He says, go and, and speak to the rock. Now, first time you have to smite it. That's, that's the type. Christ had to be smitten. Christ had to die. But now just go and talk to the rock. And what does Moses do? He goes before the children of Israel. Here now, you rebels, must we give you water out of this rock? And he smites the rock again. He takes a rod and he beats it. And then God says, well, Moses, time out. But I love what the author of Hebrews does. He doesn't do what I just did. He doesn't break Moses down and saying, wow, he's got a lot of flaws. What the children of Israel saw was he was the prophet. He was the one who was their um, deliverer. He would take the children of Israel out of Egypt through power and signs and wonders and bring them into the wilderness and then bring them into the promised land. But here's the thing. Moses himself would bring them into the wilderness and didn't get them into the promised land because of what? The children's unbelief. And so they had to wander and wander and wander. While they were wandering, Moses smotes the rock, and God says, guess what? Moses, you're not bringing them in. Joshua will bring them in. You're not. But, but you, you can see the land. I'll put you up on a mountain. You can see it, but you're not going there. Well, until you get into Matthew's gospel of the transfiguration. Then he comes back to the land. But at this point, what we see is he talks about just Jesus being faithful as Moses was faithful. And as we notice this, it's just, just this beautiful thing by, by talking how faithful Moses is and how faithful Jesus is. So when you're taking a look at Jesus Christ and you're seeing everything that he's done, just you can just give it one word. You're faithful. You're faithful. You were faithful to set your love upon me while I was a sinner. You were faithful to die for me. You were faithful to bring me into your kingdom. You were faithful to make me holy. You made me a brother and you made me a partaker. I have an inheritance of heaven. It's your faithfulness. And I look to this and I see this, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Everything that Jesus did, he did to the glory of the Father. Everything he did was in the will and the plan of the Father. And so often, I think we have this mistaken identity of the Old Testament and New Testament. We think the God of the Old Testament is one who wants to just simply slay everybody. And then Jesus comes in his love. And that's the mindset that they have. The God of the Old Testament, you got to watch out for him. But the God of the New Testament, oh, just wrap your arms around. He's the great one. But keep in mind that Jesus was what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I haven't even spoken a word that the Father hasn't given me to speak. I haven't done an action that the Father hasn't called me to do. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. And so it shows here to the, um, in verse 2, speaking of Jesus Christ, that he who was faithful to him who appointed him. 
Jesus was faithful to walk out everything that God called him to do as Moses was faithful in all his house. Now comes the direction. Now comes the guide that we're going to see here in chapter 3. It talks about Moses being faithful in all his house. Now, in the scripture, it does talk about a house. It talks about the house of David. It talks about the house of Israel. It talks about um, this house being, it is the work of God. Now, the tabernacle is also called the house of God. We're going to see that in just a moment. But he's faithful in all of his house. In other words, of his people, the nation Israel, within the house, he was faithful in all his house. It talks about here the faithfulness of Moses, but as he's faithful in the house, keep in mind that the so often the church does not see Moses as exalted as the nation Israel will. When the Jew looks at Moses, they see him, he is the deliverer, he is the lawgiver, he is all these things, he was faithful in those things. We see him as, well, I see him as Moses, but I don't see him as Jesus. The Jew sees Moses as exalted. Now, through this, and this is why when um, you know Peter was there, he saw the Moses and Elijah, and he saw the Lord, let's build these three tabernacles. So we see here, as he elevates Moses, it does declare this, that Moses also was faithful in all his house. Verse 3 For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. So Moses himself is, in a sense, very faithful within the house. We're going to see here in just a second when we get to verse 5 and verse 6, how it says, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. Note this, he's faithful in the house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards, but Christ, verse 6, as a son. Now, try to work that into comparison, okay? You got a servant and you got a son. Who's the greater one in the house? You know, so you think about this, you have a servant, you have the son. And I'll tell you what, anyone who says, oh, the servant is greater than the son, you don't understand culture. And so you have here where Moses is faithful, but I I find it a beautiful thing where it says here in verse 3, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So Moses here is a servant in the house. Moses here, what God uses him to do is this. If you're familiar with that passage in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, I just want to read it to you, but it declares this, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he, that is God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Moses here is a model maker. That's really what he is. Now, the model's a big model, don't get me wrong, but it's still a model. 
I mean, when you think about this, I don't know if you ever had someone that you knew as a kid, or maybe you did a kid, that you made models. Now, I tried it some, and I was not very good at it. My brother tried it. He wasn't very good at it. We were horrible model makers. We had pieces left over, and the painting was horrible. The glue wouldn't work. It would, you know, wouldn't stick when it was supposed to stick. The pieces would fall down. It was hard to hold them on. I don't know if they make models any better. I like those models. Just snap them together. That's the easy one. You don't have to use any glue. They already have the stickers on them. You just snap it together, and there you have it. That's the kind of model I do. But there are other ones who are absolutely incredible. That They can take models of airplanes, and they, they can put them together, models of ships, and they can put them together. And I'm thinking, well, what's better? The guy that makes the model of the ship or the engineers and the builders of the ship. The engineers and the builders of the airplane. I mean, think about this. Someone could make the, the, the model of an F-16 and how incredible would that be? But there are designers and engineers that made the F-16, built the F-16. And then someone says a model. Well, look at how great I am. I got a model sitting right here. I got on a little, you know, fish string and it's hanging up on my ceiling. That's a model. It's an F-16. Look at how amazing I am. It's plastic. It's plastic. It's just a model. Compared to the real thing, the guy who makes a model is what? <laughs> Compared to the guy who engineered it, to the people who built it, the guy who makes a model is what? Less. I mean, they could be a great model maker, but I'll tell you what. Here's Moses. He's building this thing as a pattern. God says, I'm, I'm going to give you a pattern. I want you to build it according to this pattern. You're going to make this model, big as it is, you're still going to make a model. You're going to make something because the perfection of what's there is in heaven. Now, here, he makes a model of a tabernacle that's in heaven. Now, what did Jesus do? Oh, yeah, he created heaven and earth and all the stuff that's in it. Now, you think about it. He doesn't just make the tabernacle, the original one. He doesn't just do that. He makes all of heaven, all of earth, and here's Moses doing what? Oh, I'm able to make a model. And when you think about how incredible this is in verse 3, for this one has been counted worthy of more Glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Now, Moses was faithful in the house, but keep in mind that what Moses is is this. He is one stone in the building that God is building. He's only a stone. You and I are each a stone in the building that God is building. So, so we're all living stones that are being part of the church. Moses was simply a stone. And get in mind, he wasn't even the chief cornerstone. And he's not the builder of it. So you understand he's just a stone. Now, he may be a really cool stone, but he's just a stone. And understand that everything that Moses did was what? Well, it was the grace of God. God was the one who called him. God was the one who touched him. God was the one who was patient with him. It was God who moved through this man. So we see here, this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, I am in no way trying to lessen Moses. What I'm saying is that Moses was amazing in all that he did, 
But in compared to Jesus Christ, it is so much lesser. And with as much glory as it could be that compared to Christ, it would be considered what? Insignificant. Compared to Christ, which is up here, everything that Moses did, as great as it is, more than me, more than all of us, what Moses did, but still compared to Christ, it's as if it's nothing. And so we begin to see here in verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And this is the heart where here God is the one who's the builder. He has so much more glory than Moses. And he's been counted worthy of more glory. Why? Because Moses here, well, he's faithful in the house, but Jesus built the house. And as we go on to see in verse 5, where we understand that here Moses is a servant, compare the servant to the son. And when you look at it in that way, it's, it's so amazing because not only in the works was Jesus so far superior, but in the position that he's in, he's also so far superior. Why? Because the highest thing that Moses could attain to is what? I'm a servant. Now, I may be the top servant, but I'm just a servant, I don't know if you've ever seen people that think that they are the big fish. Now, what happens is this. They, they may be a big fish in a little pond, but get them into a bigger pond and they're nothing. So you take a look at some of these sturgeon that are out there, some of the lake, you know, um, trout that are out in, in, in um, Michigan. And, you know, you can reel in, and that'd be just amazing to pull in this whomper fish. But get that fish out in the ocean? It's kibble. It's kibble compared to some of the things that are out there. And so you begin to see just how insignificant. But in a little pond, it may seem big. And, and maybe you had a boss that was like that. Just this little tiny company, and then you have this boss who's the boss of this little company, and they think, oh, I'm the big kahuna. I'm the big fish. Yeah, in this little tiny pond you are, but in the big scheme of the world, you're a blip. You don't say that to them, but you think. You know, you think you're this big fish, but you're not. And this is Moses. Moses, when it comes to all the children of, you know, doing the work, he was incredible. He was exalted. He was the biggest fish in Israel. But then compared to the universe, <laughs> compared to Jesus Christ who now builds everything, he may be the top servant, but compared to Jesus Christ who's the son, there's no weight. There's no comparison. And so we see here that Moses indeed was faithful in all of his house as a servant. And this is just this beautiful thing when we understand how, how Moses was a faithful servant. What does it mean that Moses was a faithful servant? Well, a couple of things I want to share with you just so that you can, you know, grab a hold of it. and You can sort of grasp and see what it means that Moses here was this servant. I want to take you first to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, I want to start reading from verse 24 to 29. And I want to show you why Moses was considered faithful. 
I'll give you the answer first as we go through this so you don't have to figure out where's Lowell going with this. But the answer to this, he was faithful as a servant because he pointed out Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said of John the Baptist? And of all the prophets, none greater than him. Why? Because all the things that he said about that man, Jesus Christ, was true. John did no miracles. He didn't part the Jordan, put everybody in it, let the water come back, baptize him, move the water back out. Okay, next. He didn't do anything like that. There wasn't any mighty miracles that John did. But everything that he said about Jesus Christ was true, and that's the faithfulness. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, I want to read to you just a couple of things dealing with Moses, and I want to show you where his faithfulness was. The amazing thing about what the author of Hebrews does to Moses is this, that all of his faithfulness, and you'll note this, all of his faithfulness comes before the law. This is amazing. Now let's follow with me, if you will, in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 29. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So here, he, note this, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater, greater than all the treasures of Egypt. He looked to the reward. By faith, verse 27, he forsook Egypt. He left it all, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He would look to God, and so he forsook Egypt. By faith, he kept the Passover. So first, he, he leaves Egypt. He keeps the Passover, the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So the first thing he does is, in verse 26, he is... He esteems the reproach of Christ greater. He looks to Jesus already in verse 7. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured seeing him who is invisible. He's already looking to the Lord. In verse 28, he kept the Passover. And as you know, what is the Passover? It's simply, it's a type of Jesus Christ and everything he is is a Passover lamb. But he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And by faith, verse 29, he passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. All these things were before the law. And we see that Moses here, when it talks about his faith, it talks about how amazing he was. It talks through all that thing. We begin to see that this is that heart that Jesus has. Now, in Luke chapter 24, you guys know this passage. I've shared it a few times, but I want to, the key verse you want to listen to is verse 27, and I'll read it before, um, I'll say it before I read it. But in Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, all the way through 27, it opens up this. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to the village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And they said 
And he, Jesus, said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And one of those who was named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened here in these days? And he said, what things? So they said the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be con condemned to death and crucified him but we're hoping that it was but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel indeed besides this today is the third day since these things happened and yes certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us and they did not find his body they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said but they did not but him they did not see now verse 27 he said oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe of all that the prophets have spoken ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory and then he says this in verse 27 and beginning, beginning with Moses. Beginning at Moses, he said in verse 27, and all the prophets, he expounded them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And this is the heart. This is where God was. This is what God desired, that he would want to share everything that was concerning him. And that's the heart that we begin to see. And so through this, so often, it is one of those things where another passage I want to give to you, John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47. The key verses are going to be 47 or 45 through 47, but let me read it to you. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 39. You search the scriptures. For in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. And I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from God? And now he says this in verse 45 through 47. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses was faithful. And Moses was faithful because what? Because one, he believed and he believed and he believed. Moses wasn't faithful because of the law. Understand that where Moses and his faith comes from, it was there always before the law. Now remember, Galatians tells us what? That, that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Same as Romans. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We see here that Abraham's righteousness comes what? Over 400 years before the law. The law isn't given yet and Moses or 
Abraham was already what? He saved. Abraham believed and the belief was accounted to him for righteousness. He's already righteous before the law. So when Moses comes and he gives the law, is that really going to make someone righteous? It doesn't because even the author of Hebrews says what? He says, well, listen, this law, this law, and we'll, we'll look to as we get further in there, the, the law itself had a purpose and the purpose was to drive us to Christ. And so once that purpose is done, then, then we, we say, okay, now that I'm there with Christ, that's what I want to do. I want to keep my eyes upon him. I want to look to him. But I love the heart because Moses was faithful. Moses was faithful in all the house. And so, but he was faithful as a servant. And as a servant, what did he do? He pointed to the son. He pointed to the son. He pointed to the son. Let's look to him. And I love the heart of it because we see here that Moses indeed was faithful in all his, that is God's house, as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. So Moses was indeed faithful in the house as a servant, verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence, and the rejoicing of the hope to the end. So at this point, he says, Moses, he was faithful, a servant in the house. He was a part of the house. He was a person within the house. He was a servant in the house. Jesus was what? He was the house. He was the son. He was everything that was there. And so we see here, that we are part of the house, not as not of the house of Moses. We're what? We're part of the house of Jesus Christ. We're one stone as Moses was one stone. So it's so important to be looking to understanding that, yes, as amazing as the prophets were, Jesus is so much better. As amazing as the angels are, Jesus is so much better. And as the, the Hebrews would be looking to Moses... Their deliverer, here the author of Hebrews saying, you have a greater deliverer. Now Moses, yeah, he was faithful. He brought the children out of Egypt, but Jesus brings you what? Moses brought them into just about the promised land. That's what his goal was, bringing them to the promised land. Jesus brings you to heaven, eternally. So far different. Moses is a servant. Jesus is a son. And it says, and of course, at the end of verse 6, whose house we are if we hold fast um, the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And now what we see is this. He shifts from the study. In other words, considering Jesus and, and this whole thing of the security that we have in Jesus versus the, the security that we have in Moses. The service that Jesus did versus the service that Moses did as a servant. The difference between the, superior, the superiority of the son versus the servant. But now he shifts by talking about not the study, but the staying. Take a look again in verse 6. But Christ as the Son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. He's talking about staying. Staying with Jesus. 
And I think it's important that once you come to Jesus, just stay with him. Don't, don't wander back to something else. Don't say, well, maybe there's something new I can look to. Just stay with perfection. You leave perfection and you get less than perfection. Only Jesus is perfect. Jesus is everything that you need. You wander from him and you wonder what's lacking. But within this whole area of staying, there's three things that he points out. The first is straying. Take a look at verses 7 through 9. And let's take a look at this going astray. What we see is this. In verses 7 through 9, it talks about, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. What we see initially is this whole area of straying. What he does is this. He says the Holy Spirit says, and he quotes from Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, he's quoting from verses 7 through 11. And the the beautiful thing is, is this. We see here, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in verse 7, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He talks about a hardening of the heart. He talks about the rebellion of the children of Israel. Now, what is this rebellion? How does it look? Well, we'll be going further into that rebellion once we hit verses 16 through 19. Let me read it to you so you understand what this rebellion is. It says, for having heard rebelled indeed, I'm reading from Hebrews 3 verse 16, For whom, having heard rebelled, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom he was angry 40 years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So within this area, he's saying, stay. Just stay with Jesus Christ. Now, their very actions are going to show them that they're straying in their hearts. And now God himself declares this, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you will hear his voice, Don't harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, do what he calls you to do. There's a passage, and you guys know it. I'm going to just read it to you. Just jot it down as far as the reference. But it's found in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. You guys know this because Jesus himself is saying, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him as a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And see, he talks about hearing the sayings and doing them. And this is what was happening there. He says, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. God gave them a word. He spoke the word and they said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to believe that. I can't walk it. And he says here, 
In Matthew 7, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And of course, it says, and then the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was found on the rock. But then he makes that other statement, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken him to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So we see that here, Jesus is, is the author of Hebrews, speaking through the Holy Spirit, through Psalm 95, actually says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and in the day of trial in the wilderness. We begin to see that here, God called him to walk in faith. God called him to move forward into this land that he promised them that God would be the one to bring them into that land. God would be the one to um, give them victory in the land. And yet their hearts were hardened. And it's interesting. He says, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, they tried me, they saw my works 40 years. At this point, keep in mind that they were supposed to see his work for about 40 days. That was going to be the test. You're going to take you in. We're going to get you to the Red Sea. We're going to get you to the, the law. We'll get you there. Everything's going to be fine. Won't take that long. But what's happening is this, is when they got to the place of entering in, and we'll see that when it comes to rebellion, they were like, I don't want to go in. I, I, don't, I don't like the people that are there. I don't like what I'm seeing. I like the food. That looks really good. But nothing else do I like of the land. And they were terrified. But what God says is this, they saw my works. They were a witness of what? God destroying, first bringing them out of Egypt, taking them through the Red Sea as if on dry land, then destroying the Egyptian army. That was the power of God. And if he could destroy the Egyptian army, do you not think that he could bring them into the land? Who are these others? They were terrified of Pharaoh. He held them in bondage. And through that, now they're going into another land. God showed them how powerful he was through the plagues. And yet, as they go in, they now hesitate. And this is where here, verse 10 says, Therefore, I was angry with this generation, with that generation. God called Israel to walk in faith. He called Israel to believe him, and they didn't. And when they failed to believe, God said, I'm angry with you. I've promised you, and I've proven to you, and all you have to do is walk in what I've provided for you. In other words, you could call it this. If somebody were to say, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. If they would say something like that. Oh, it sounds like verse 1. If they would say that, then you walk in what God has called you to do. Walk in that place that God has called you to be. But in verse 10, it says, therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. We begin to see here that they're straying. He wants them to stay focused on him, to understand who he is, stay with him. But it says, but you're straying. Now, here's the problem. 
why is the author of Hebrews trying to get the children that he's writing to to stay focused on Christ? There is an understanding that through this period of time that those who were Jewish, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, there was a persecution that came. One, the persecution to Rome started amping up. The other thing is they had a persecution at home. The family was saying, hey, you know, you left Moses, you left the law, you left all that we stand for. You're leaving all that for this Jesus and this Christianity and for this church. Why are you doing that? And so he warns them, be careful that you don't because of the trials that you're going through the suffering that's taking place right now where your family's rejecting you and Rome you know, may want to kill you, all these things that are going on in this Christianity that you're now leaving what you knew of and grew up in there in Judaism. So you're leaving all that and now with this persecution, be careful you don't go back to it. To say, you know what, uh, Let's. I'll go back because it's just easier for me. I don't have to go through the trials. I don't have to go through the mocking. I don't have to go through, you know, the, the rejections. I just, I want to have my life not have a battle. And you want to take the easy way. And so you say, I don't want a battle, so I'm just not going to just walk in this. I'm going to go back to what's easier, to Judaism. And this is why he says, be careful that you don't go back. Be careful that you don't stray back to what you, something that was lesser than Jesus Christ. Don't go back to that anymore. Stay focused. You've already moved ahead to Jesus Christ. Stay with him. And so in verse 10, he says, I was angry with that generation. I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They don't stay focused. They didn't stay there. And then he says this, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Now, how could they not know his ways? He says, I was there for 40 years. I was doing miracles. You saw the signs. How do they not know it? Well, they didn't walk it. If, if, they, if they knew, they understood, they believed, they actually knew that they knew, they would have walked it. But he says, because you haven't walked it, you haven't known. You've gone astray. You haven't believed what I've said. And so, verse 11, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now, we'll get into rest when we get into chapter 4 in a deeper way. But I think it's, it's so important to, to realize that the first thing he does is he says, okay, now first, I want you to study. I want you to consider Jesus Christ and who he is and all of those aspects to where he's at. And then he says, I want you to stay. Be careful that you don't go back. And he says, now, now there, there's different types of straying that one, you can go back into the old ways. You can go back into the old thoughts. And then there's another way of straying is this. It's doubting. Take a look at verses 12 through 14. And, and notice what happens. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, 
It's a beautiful warning that he gives. And within this warning, he says, now, beware, brethren. All right, beware, brethren, tells me what? It's a warning. Within this warning, he's telling you, be careful when it comes to unbelief. Be careful when it comes to doubt. And when you have that area of doubt, when you don't believe what God is doing, you're not trusting in where, where God has, is leading, there's a danger to that. I want to give to you two verses found in Deuteronomy chapter 1. I want to give you verse, verses 31 and 32 and verse 43. So Deuteronomy 1 verse 31 and 32, and then Deuteronomy 1 verse 43. Let me simply read it to you. Deuteronomy 1, verse 31 and 32 declare, And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place, yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God. An incredible statement is, I've carried you, I, I have brought you out. As a man would carry his son, and that thought is this, a father carrying an infant. You have nothing. I carried you like a father would carry his son, and, and I, I brought you to this place. And with all that, he said, you didn't believe me. You did not believe the Lord your God. In verse 43, he would say, I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went into the mountain. So we see here that as, as God brings you into, say, I want to have you partake of everything that I want to give to you, you were what? You had an unbelief. You didn't believe what God declared. And I think be careful of that. And, and why, does, why do I want to focus on this one aspect? One, because it just stands out. As, as a whole part of this, the skepticism and the doubting and, you know, as far as straying away from the Lord. But the other thing it does is this. When God gives you a word, like Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. Do you believe it? Or do you doubt it? Or do you question it? See, sometimes we go through life and I don't think this is working together for good. <laughs> because what? You don't know the end from the beginning. See, God knows the end from the beginning. God is working all these things out, and there's a timing that God has. There's a plan that God has. And to be honest, we don't know it. But are you going to believe it, or are you going to doubt it? And, and so what happens is this. When you begin to doubt, even just that one verse, that all things work together for good, when you begin to do it, he calls it this, an evil heart of unbelief. That you're beginning to stray, you're beginning to doubt, you have the skepticism that's going on. And that's why he says in verse 12 again, Beware, brother Lister, be in you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. You're leaving who he is, you're leaving what he has done. And so be careful that when you do that, as you begin to separate, you know, from the Lord. There's a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. I want to read to you just a couple of verses. I want to start in verse 24, and I want to read down to verse 30. And the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long will you keep us in doubt? If you are in the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answers, I told you, you did not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now they're asking him, and they said, okay, don't, don't keep us in doubt. Tell us plainly. Well, and he does. He says, I've already told you, and my works bear witness of that. I and the Father are one. And so when he gives them this word, guess what? They're still questioning. He tells them as plain as they can, and yet they're still questioning. And I think, be careful lest there be in you this heart of unbelief. That when God says something, you begin to question, do you really mean it? Do you really declaring it? He's just arresting me. And I think it's so important to realize that when Jesus says, you focus on me and I'm the answer to everything in your life. And then we begin to wonder, well, is he really the answer? Yes, he really is the answer. No matter what you're going through, you put your eyes on him. You look to him for his glory and, and what he desires out of your life. It's so important that, that you're looking to, God, what is it that you're wanting? And understand that Jesus always has this tendency to draw people into this is the heart of God. And Paul will do the same thing. When people ask Jesus questions, and of course, you know, if you're familiar with that portion of Matthew's gospel in chapter 19, these Pharisees come up and they start asking questions about the divorce. And they say, what about all the problems of marriage? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you about the purpose of marriage. See, you guys are looking at the problems. I'm telling you, this is the purpose. Hey, God made man and, and he made woman and he joined the two and they should be one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. He tells them, here's the purpose. They would ask Paul, what about this? What about this? And he'd simply say, well, I know you want an answer specifically, but let me just give you the heart of God. And he would share this beautiful aspect of the heart of God. And they're like, that's the answer. It's about coming into the heart of God. It's about coming into just walking with the Lord. But be careful lest you have this, this after you stray, then there's a skepticism. And it usually goes in those increments. That first you begin to wander a little bit. You start looking at other things than Jesus, and you begin to say, okay, well, Jesus is good, and I have him in my heart, but I'm going to go to this, and I'm going to look to this. Well, once you begin to stray, as soon as you begin to stray, then the enemy comes in and says, did God really say, do you really need? And, and it's a stepping stone, but it's a downward stepping stone. And that's why he's saying you need to stay here because if you begin to stray, if you begin to take your eyes off the Lord, then the enemy is going to come in and plant seeds of skepticism. The enemy is going to come in and plant seeds of doubt. And you know as well as I do as a Christian, when you're walking, your eyes are set on the Lord and the enemy comes in and cries, that's a lie. I know it's a lie because I'm looking at the real thing right here. I don't need to look at shadows. I don't need to look at types. So be careful because what the author of Hebrews does is he gives you this three-fold stepping stone of be careful because you need to stay. Once you begin to stray, then you begin to have this area of skepticism of doubt. And once you begin to have that area of doubt, then you get into this point of sedition. You get into the point of absolute rebellion. And that's how the enemy works this within our own hearts. 
And this is here where he says, okay, be careful. Don't harden your hearts. Don't take your eyes off the Lord because if you do, then you're going to have this heart of unbelief. Now, once you have that heart of unbelief, in verse 15 through 19, he says this, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So this warning now continues to say, listen, you keep your eyes focused on the Lord. Don't veer from him because he's so much better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels in, in his, his deity, better than the angels in humanity. He's so far better than Moses that, that you're all looking to. Get your eyes on the Lord because if you start taking your eyes off the Lord and you stray, you begin to start that downward step. You begin to start sinking in the ways. And then after you stray, then you have it where you begin to doubt. Once you take your eyes off the Lord, the enemy comes in with those questions. The enemy comes in and causes you to doubt. Other people come in and cause you to doubt. Why? Because you're not just focused on the Lord and loving the Lord and worshiping him. And when that doubt becomes, then it turns into this full-blown rebellion. Then you begin to listen to the lies of the enemy and you don't enter in. Now, there's a passage and you guys turn there if you would. Go back to the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 13. And in Numbers chapter 13, this is that whole portion where Jesus is going to bring the children of Israel or wants to bring the children of Israel into the land. And he's going to use Moses to do this. And as he's, Moses is now coming to say, I want to bring you into this land. So what happens is this. Numbers 13, beginning in verse 17 and 18, declare this. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up this way into the south and go up into the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak or few or many. He says, I want you to go into the land and tell me, is it a good land? Is it a bad land? What's going on in the land? Well, eventually they come back in verse 25 and he sends out 12. He sends out two from each of the, um, he sends out two from each of the tribes. So, um, he sends out, what, 24 people, and his, or no, one from each of the tribes. So he sends out the 12. And as he sends out the 12, what happens is this. Verse 25, and they return from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is 
its fruit. So they bring back this fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwelt in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the, in the land in the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Now, I love what God does. So Moses sends out 12. Two comes back with a good report. Just two. So what I love is this. When Joshua goes and he sends in, he only sends in two spies. He knows. Just send in the two who have a belief. Don't send in 12. Send in two. Two come back with this great report. Caleb in verse 30 quieted the people before Moses said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb said, let's do this. Let's go. Well, but the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. They may be stronger than you, but are they stronger than God? See, and so they're not, they're not believing what God said. And in verse 32, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report. And a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we seen, whom we saw are men of great stature and we are like, and they're like giants, the descendants of Anak who came from the giants and we are like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. So they're now looking by the eyes of sight, not the eyes of faith. And they literally, you know, first they took their eyes off the Lord. Now they're saying, let's just look to what the spies have to say, not to what God has to say. And then they begin to doubt it. And after they begin to doubt, these guys are huge and this is big and I don't know if we can do this. And after you go to the doubt, notice what happens in chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, against the whole congregation, said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's select a leader and return to Egypt. Now, here's the thing. So often we think that the rebellion is, I didn't go in the land. Notice how great their rebellion is. Not just we're not going into the land, we're going back to Egypt. Don't go back. And so often that's what happens. How many times when things get a little bit rough as a Christian, you go through trials and tribulations, like I'm just going to kind of hang out in the world. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to just compromise a little bit here, compromise a little bit just, just so that I don't have to go through these trials anymore. And this is what happens. It goes from straying to skepticism and doubting uh, to the sedition, this absolute rebellion. And you take these downward steps. And so now they're wanting to go back to Egypt. And as they want to go back to Egypt, this is so incredible. Verse 4 said, They said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces 
before all the assembly of the congregation, the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land that we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and he will give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only, verse 9, do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle and meeting before the children of Israel. So this is what happens. Here, you know, Joshua comes and says, guys, don't rebel. God has given us this land, and, and he has taken their protection away. Now, remember when the two spies come into the land and they talk to Rahab? The two spies are like, oh, should we come? Should we come? And Rahab's like, oh, the people, their hearts are melted like wax. They, they know that God is with you. They know that God is going to deliver this, and they're terrified. Rahab had more faith than the, the children of Israel. So we begin to see here where Joshua's don't rebel against the Lord, verse 9, nor fear the people. And so what's their reaction? Don't, don't rebel against the land. Don't worry about the suffering that you think is going to happen. God is going to do a work. What they choose to do is this. They wanted to stone them. And as they want to stone them, the glory of God appears. The glory of God appeared, and then we see here, they still want to leave. God's glory shows up, and they still want to go. And so when we get over here now to verse 21, it says this, But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men who had seen my glory... And the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land and where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. And so we see here that God warns me, he says, you guys aren't going into the land. He says in verse 29, he says, and the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore to make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. So incredible that what God is doing through the author of Hebrews, he says, listen, I need you to just focus on one thing. Laser beam focus in your study. Consider Jesus. 
Consider Jesus. And I, I know, I know where the trials you're going through is Hebrews, that you want to go back to Moses, you want to go back to the law, you want to go back to the, the traditions, and you want to go back to the feasts and all those things. I'm telling you, get your eyes on Jesus Christ. Because all these other things we're going to see as the author of Hebrews is they're, they're shadows and they're types. They're just pointers to Jesus. They're, 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 they're to get you to see him, the fullness of his ministry and everything that he's done. And so he warns them now, you got to stay with him. Once you get your eyes on him, don't take your eyes off the Lord. Because once you start straying, then you're going to take the next step and begin to doubt. And once you start taking your eyes off the Lord, you know it. The enemy just gets in and, and causes us to doubt. And once we begin to doubt, then we believe the doubters. We believe the lies and we walk in rebellion. We walk in those things that is not God's heart. And so I think it's just a beautiful word that he gives to us. And so I want to close it again by reading here in Hebrews 3, 16 through 19. For who having heard rebelled, indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And we know it was all except for Joshua and Caleb and those that were under 20 years of age. Now with him, with whom he was angry 40 years. So he took him through the wilderness on a 40-year death march. Was it not with those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness. So if they didn't want to enter into the rest, God says, I won't give you rest. You wander around, wander around till you die. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? He said, go into the land and inherit it. I've given it to you. This is my land. I've given it to you. But they could not believe. They took their eyes off the Lord and off his power and off his majesty, off of the works that he did, bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea, bringing them through the wilderness, providing for them every single moment. And they took their eyes off the Lord and how great he was. And now they're saying, look at how we see ourselves and how they see ourselves. They see us as grasshoppers. We see us as grasshoppers. But understand they may see you as a grasshopper, but do you remember back in the book of Judges with Gideon? Here's Gideon hiding out in a wine press threshing wheat. Now, you may think that's not a big deal, but keep in mind that uh, when you thresh wheat, you thresh it on a high hill so that when you throw up the wheat, the chaff is taken by the wind and it blows away. That's where you thresh on a high hill. A wine press, you, it's like in a cave. It's in a, in a small, because you don't want a bunch of wind blowing the leaves and everything else into the, the, the vat. So he's now threshing grain in a place where there's no wind. And I don't know how far the, the chaff is going to blow, but as he's hiding out, doing this, threshing wheat in a wine press, an angel comes and says, oh, mighty man of valor. So that's how God saw him. And keep in mind that, that God is the one who's going to, how do we, do we see ourselves as God sees us? Or do we see ourselves as the world sees us? See, the world sees us as what? Oh, you're just weak Christians. You're, you're just followers of Jesus. And we know that what? Oh, we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the God of all creation. I don't have to worry about what you do. I know to whom I belong. And so 
Here we see that, that they, they, it says in verse 18, whom and to whom did he swear that they would not enter a rest, but to those who did not obey. They couldn't believe his words. And so we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. And I think it's so important that they, they took their eyes off the Lord. They began to doubt, and that doubt led them into a rebellion. And he says they couldn't enter into this rest. And there's a rest that we have. And understand that if you don't keep your eyes on the Lord, you and I as a Christian, we won't enter into rest. We're not going to have peace. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that, take a look when, in your walk, when you begin to not have peace, and you begin to start thinking, everything's going wrong, everything's going wrong. Where are you looking? Where are you looking? And, and I think, to be honest with you, we're not really just getting on our face and getting back to Jesus Christ. It's when we get back on our face and back to the Lord that he begins to what? Now let me wash over you a peace. So it's a real good thing. If you're not finding your peace, it's probably because you're not drawing close enough to Jesus Christ. Because if you're driving clo drawing close to Jesus Christ, you know this, all things work together for good. There's nothing that you can go through that he isn't doing in your life to draw you closer to him. That isn't for his glory. That is, that's his work. And so it's important to believe God's word. Believe God's promises. And so we see just once again just how much better Jesus is. And because he is so incredibly superior, don't drift from him. Keep your eyes upon him and his promises that, that you are through him, verse 1 again, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That you have all those promises, that you have this, this position and this inheritance and a place that he says, I've made you holy. I've called you brethren, and now you can partake of everything that I have. When you doubt, when you drift, all that begins to be questioned. All that, you, you no longer have that peace. So draw near the Lord, keep your eyes upon him, and don't drift. Amen?